Hello Strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here as ever with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you sir? I'm, I'm keeping on keeping on man. Uh, I'm doing okay, yeah. Uh, it feels like between these shows, sort of a load of events happen but also nothing happens in the current <laughs> you know, stasis of things. So uh, yeah, I, I think things are going well. What is it now? February, mid-June, the end of the year? I'm not too sure. February uh, the 16th, in fact. Cool. Oh, yeah, of course, because we just had Valentine's Day. How did it go for you, man? Was it full of romance? Uh, yeah. Laura went to bed early because she had to uh, work at seven o'clock in the morning, so it was cracking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did my my absolute uh, standard you know, edition, which is uh, Francesca, my wife, gives me a really thoughtful... Uh, hand-drawn and written card and a uh, lovely present, very thoughtful, small gift, but, you know, the, the thought is the thing that's really romantic about it. And then I realised, oh, yeah, I left getting a Valentine's gift until Valentine's Day. Better get myself to Big Tesco and find a collection of things. Now I'll add a couple more things to like, make it look like <laughs> I am really generous rather than slightly forgetful slash lax on these kind of things. But I think it went okay in the end, man. We're still together. It's all right. Well, we are, we, to be fair, we are. We did buy each other, we, in fairness, we did buy each other the new Mario game on Switch. Been playing that a bit. So that was nice. That was nice. Yeah, I'm terrible I mean, at it. But, if, that, yeah. <laughs> if that's not love, then what is? I mean, really. Exactly. Um, <laughs> We on this show love, amongst other things, movies, and we divide our show into a sort of audio tour through... Do you remember that thing we used to do, Paul? It was called Going to the Cinema. Well, it was like a like pastime that we had way back, you know, in the olden days. Well, what we did back in those olden days is we designed our show format around that, and no, now no one's doing that anymore. So it sounds a bit redundant when I say that we'll take you on an audio trip through the cinema, but, you know, for old times' sake, you can reminisce. So what we're going to do is divide the show into our normal sections, first of which will be in the foyer, a discussion of the latest film news stuff across our desks and radars over the last seven days or so. Then we'll get into the section that we have always called... For as long as I can remember, popcorn movies, where we talk about the films we've seen in the last seven days, again, since the last record. We get into then two features this week, Paul. What are we doing feature-wise? Uh, so this week we've got uh, Dead Pigs, uh, which I'm quite excited to talk about, which movie have kind of unearthed from, I don't know where this film is sat. This is, I believe, the debut from director Kathy Yan, um, better known for directing the Harley Quinn film from early last year. It was last year, wasn't it? Um, so yeah, this is movie. Bless God, bless God, bless their souls. Uh, I've picked this one up and put it out. So we, yeah, we're featuring dead pigs. Um, and then the second feature this week will be. Uh, it's certainly a Netflix release over here in the UK, but you may have been lucky enough to see it in cinemas if you're listening out in the US. Uh, this is News of the World, the latest film from Paul Greengrass, starring Tom Hanks. Uh, so that'll be our two features this week. Quite excited to talk about both of those, to be honest. So yeah, should be a good show. 
Nice. And then finally, we cap off the show, we roll the credits and we just give credit to something that we've enjoyed basically over the last week. Doesn't have to be film related. Sometimes listeners, I think, enjoy those, pick them up and run with them. So let's start off where we intend to, Paul, which is in the foyer. Anything in particular you want to chat about this week before we get into film review stuff? Uh, well, we talked a bit about this off air. Um, Gina Carano situation seems to have blown up uh, on the <laughs> would be. I mean, Pete, fill us in on this one. You you were you were talking about this a bit more than me before the show, uh, but this situation has certainly blown up, resulting on her now being fired from the Mandalorian. And in bigger news, her Hasbro Star Wars figure has now been cancelled from production. So that's got her. Yes. So I mean, I suppose the the two sort of diametrically opposed positions that people are supposed to jump into now either are cancel culture is so rampant that you can't say anything these days or the other side which is uh you know Gina Carano has been going this way for a while man like you know you had the the kind of taking the piss out of pronouns uh, last year which led to the fire Gina Carano hashtag blowing up a little bit there's also been the stuff that she's been doing aligning herself more and more with sort of uh, conservative politics, let's say, but um, some kind of things that have been taken either the wrong way or the right way in a way that is offending people, I think, quite a lot. And and most of all, most recently, of course, her comments, which seem to be comparing the plight of Jews in the Second World War with the plight of the likes of herself, who are apparently big quotation marks being silenced right now. Now, maybe the way I describe that gives away how I feel about this. And I do think context is important. And I do think understanding the the Gina Carano story is relatively important. Because remember, this is someone who crossed over from MMA as the sort of beautiful, uh, lip-biting, winking face of uh, of MMA at the time in, a, in an era where female fighters were basically not accepted. And then at the end of her career, in her last fight, she got battered by Chris Cyborg Santos and, you know, went off with her tail between her legs, only to re-emerge as seemingly this promising screen presence. Now, Paul, first of all, do you, have you got a lot of investment in Gina Carano as a, as a figure on screen? I mean, I know you do with The Mandalorian, so you can give an insight on that side. Like, just on the taking away the politics for a second, is this character and Carano as this character going to be a big miss on the, on that series? No. Uh, would be the would be the short answer to that question. She's an interesting enough character that like the premise of having the premise of having like a sort of rebel republic sort of, sort of former rebel new republic soldier is cool. It's, it's certainly a cool premise, and I think the idea of having this character certainly adds something to the show. I don't think Carano's performance is anything to write home about on the show, but I think you know she's. She adds, she adds something to the show. There's a physicality about her that I don't, th- I think, a, a lot of other female actors would struggle to match, um, and that's, you know, that's good to see. Um, but I, I don't think this is a character that the show's particularly going to miss, in all honesty. Yeah, right. And so I'm glad that you can fill me in because I've, I've got to be honest. Although I've intended to, I've never caught up with any of the Mandalorian, which probably won't come as a huge surprise to <laughs> listeners who know that I'm not very well versed in the the Star Wars canon. But uh, yeah, and and then back on Carano, I mean. I I don't know. I don't have a great deal of patience for, you know, multi-millionaire screen star of both the big and small screen to a, you know, lesser or greater extent crying, you know, I'm silenced when you've got a huge platform. You know, everything has sort of been rolled out for Carano. And let's not forget, I mean, it's not throwing shade to say like, she's not a particularly great actress. I mean, she's not showered herself in glory in terms of her on-screen appearances. And sure, she may be improving. She may be on an upward traje- trajectory in that 
regard. But I mean, this is the same actress who was completely redubbed basically out of Haywire in terms of her voice by Steven Soderbergh on the premise that I guess people found Carano to be too identifiable as Gina Carano, the fighter, maybe? Was that what we were saying at the time? But I think perhaps it was more that her voice lacked uh, any kind of character. Um, that's how it came across anyway. And like, Hey, Why is a bit of a weird film anyway? But seeing, her, you know, at the time, seeing her armbar Michael Fassbender, I mean, I can't pretend that wasn't a great joy. It's just a shame it's gone this way. And the more I hear the woman speak or pontificate on the internet, the less I feel invested in in defending her in any way, to be honest. Um, so who knows? Who knows how it will play out? But it does seem like it's going the way of working independently with Ben Shapiro rather than working on board the great ship Lucasfilm or, you know, at the other giant corporations that had her under their wing previous to this. Um, final thoughts, Paul? Are you going to miss Gina Carano? Were you hoping to see more of her or is her sort of disappearing into the shadows fine? I think I think The Mandalorian will be fine without it. I think it's it's all too easy to, to scream cancel culture in this case. But ultimately, she's there's a lot of what, what, you know, what most people would consider to be controversial tweets that have gone up. A lot of fairly controversial opinions. But, you know, everyone, I'm not arguing that some people aren't entitled to their opinion. She shared a lot of stuff and Disney and Lucasfilm have kind of let her off the hook with it over the past 12 months. So I think at some point, a part of me, for the cynical part of me, thinks she was pushing and pushing and pushing because she wanted this to happen, and therefore she mm. then gets a larger platform. Because ultimately, they didn't, you know, they. I think, I think Disney have kind of learned their lesson a little bit from the James Gunn situation, where they kind, where they, where they fired him from Guardians of the Galaxy three because some historic tweet, some historic tweets were were leaked. Um, so I think that she, you know. It, over the past twelve months, I think she's been given she's been given a number of chances. There is unfortunately a level of public attention that comes with these roles. There is a level of conduct that Disney expects in your personal life, and most people before they jump in for a Disney role should probably be aware of that. So I think she's I don't think it is council culture. I think she was given quite a number of chances, uh, and she's pushed it and pushed it and pushed it to see how far she can go, and um and Disney have pushed back. So. Um, you know, I'm all for people expressing their views, whether they whether they agree with me or not is, is kind of irrelevant. But I don't think this is I don't think this is a case of of council culture. I don't think she's been put upon unnecessary here myself. Yeah. And it's, you know, important that you mention that thing about about Disney as well, that, you know, at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, if you sign a contract with conditions and clauses included uh, to work for a giant corporation that has particular rules about your conduct and the kind of things you say, particularly publicly, and then you breach those terms or that understanding or whatever they've got written into that contract, then at the end of the day, it's business and you're going to lose your job. So, you know, there is that side to it too. And just a, a final point is to say that on the IMDb, they have this star meter thing, I'm sure you're aware of, which kind of gives you an indication of which stars, which actors and actresses are being talked about most frequently or most searched on the platform. Gina Carano sits at number one at the moment. So obviously it's worked, I guess. I, I don't know. It's all a bit of a murky situation. Let's get ourselves out of it, Paul. And uh, to the fact that something a bit lighter, I suppose, the um, situation with Mission Impossible, although I guess for fans, it's perhaps 
bad news. Mission Impossible 7 was to be filmed back to back with Mission Impossible 8. 7 is just about at wrapping point now, whereas 8 isn't going to be filmed right away. Any thoughts on this and about taking a little bit of a break before getting to, to filming the next installment? It's coming. From what, I, from what I understand on this, it's because Tom Cruise wanted to fulfil his obligations for the Top Gun 2 press tour. Um, which, you know, is fair enough. Uh, I can imagine Top Gun 2, I imagine oh, the Mission Impossible franchise and the Top Gun films obviously mean a lot to crew. So I can kind of see why you why he would want to do that. It, the set, if you re, if you believe what's come, come out from the stories of the set of Mission Impossible 7, it's been a fairly tense set, I think, we're trying to film under, under COVID restrictions. Um, things haven't gone to plan, sort of filming started and stopped again. So this news isn't a massive surprise to me to be honest um and i th i still think i don't know whether it's going to i don't know what the plans are for the release dates at this point whether or not it even impacts the expected release dates because although they would film back to back there's, there's no way they'd release mission impossible 7 and 8 at the same time so i don't know whether as fans of the film we will see any so i don't think we'll necessarily notice any palpable delay from this to be honest so um i don't think there's any chance of mission impossible 8 shutting down unless mission impossible 7 absolutely tanks at the box office which again is very very unlikely at this stage i think so i think it's still a sure thing i think respect to tom cruise for saying actually no i need to honor the press the press tour for top gun 2 maybe that press tour doesn't go ahead and because if top gun gets delayed again we don't know we don't know but yeah i not really any reason for concern i don't think here yeah, so what we have at this stage is that given these uh, tweaks, Mission Impossible 7, the one that's being wrapped now, slated to um, get into theatres, you know, touch wood and all being well, November 19th of this year, um, whereas 8 should be somewhere around the same time of year, the following year, so November time 2022. Uh, but that could be obviously pushed a little later now that we've got this delay in production so yeah we'll see what goes on but it should be all being well by the end of the year we have a new mission impossible film and i'm all for that because uh, we like talking about those on this here podcast as well as all of our sort of art house stuff and seven minute short films we've got space for mission impossible <laughs> seven uh, paul i tell you what there's a segue amazon don't have space for uh, short films apparently and documentaries in the form of what is submitted to Amazon Prime Video Direct, the self-publishing arm of the Amazon Prime platform that gives creators the opportunity to make royalties from their productions and put them out there to a wider audience. Amazon have said that they will not be accepting submissions that are short form uh, films or documentary uh, non-fiction projects either for the foreseeable future because they don't want to uh, effectively um what do you think about this it seems to me not good no i think this is you know i i wasn't aware that this process was in place i thought there was some kind of um some kind of sort of hoops you had to jump through to get your stuff onto amazon um i don't think i overall no probably not good because there's not enough um there's not enough outlets for short films as it stands at the moment you know there's a number of fest film short film festivals out there um where people can pick up short films but even those you know i would say you're kind of your average film goer still probably isn't attending those. So, you know, to have to have any any platform closed to filmmakers to put out their work is sad. Uh, but that being said, a lot of the stuff I have seen on Amazon when I have kind of delved into the the short film dungeon of Amazon Prime, I think is is kind of the way it feels at times. I don't I don't think the the quality the bar of quality for all of the work is necessarily that high. So I can part of me can see it from the Amazon the Amazon side of things as well. Um 
but overall, no, it, it's not a great, it's not a great move. I don't think because there is some very good stuff on there as well. I will, I will hasten to add. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just reading around this um, by way of Filmmaker Magazine is where I'm getting my info this time round. Uh, distributors like, um, who have we got here? Sam, Samuel Goldwyn, uh, Films, Kino Lorber, Icarus, Film Rice have all put out their uh, projects, projects that they've bought essentially on this platform or through this um, arm of the, the Prime video platform. And then I've just got a little quote, which is uh, distributors outraged by Amazon moves say that it will have broader marketplace implications. The quote being, yes, this is going to affect our acquisition prices, said one distributor. What we used to pay was X for a title, but we will now pay Y or we won't even buy a film at all because we can't cover the expenses. Apparently, the platform could account for up to 40% of the overall revenue of uh, production. Wow. So it's major. I mean, particularly, I would say, with um, niche documentaries, for example, trying to find an audience and having a way of doing that through this uh, platform, that's now cut off. And this is going to make the selling and purchasing of those projects um, a sort of slower and, and less profitable, perhaps, process as well. So, I mean, watch this space. We'll update on this if anything changes and if we get word of a change or a move on Amazon's part. But, like, as kind of the biggest company in the world, it seems to me a fairly significant wielding of power, maybe for the worse, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I just think there is... I, I don't know what the answer is with short films. I, I really don't, because there's this, you know, as as, as we know, you've helped out with the Six. I work for the Six Short Film Festival there's some incredible stuff out there like absolutely some incredible filmmakers working in short film um and you know we 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 took the festival online last year and got sort of record viewing numbers for the shorts that filmmakers have submitted but i don't need to, it's just difficult to try and get people to convince people to watch them to to widen the market for them but you know certainly taking away an access point for short films isn't the way to do it uh w- without a doubt i just think it for me it's a shame that they're always all too often seen as kind of a gateway to features really um because there are some absolutely incredible shorts out there so anything you know anything that lessens people's exposure to them um is always is always a bit of a downer in my book mm, absolutely well Let's not let the downer hang around for too long. We'll jump out of here. And when we come back after a short break, we will have our popcorn movies, the stuff we've been watching and we're excited to talk about right after this. So welcome back. Uh, this is the section of the show we like to call Popcorn Movies, as we've mentioned already today. Um, this is where we talk about films we've seen probably since the last podcast, generally. They can either be short films or feature films, whatever genre, whatever we want to talk about, essentially. So, um, Pete, uh, I'll hand over to you with your first popcorn pick. Nice. Uh, yeah, first for me this week is one that I caught up with through um, Mubi, because Mubi have now, amongst other wonderful things, got a little, I believe, mini feature on um, Alex Ross Perry, who's a director that I've talked about a bunch on the show, not least because last year, was it last year? No, the year before last, Her Smell, right? The year before, I've lost track of time. I'm, year before last, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I've still not caught up with that even, so yeah, but yeah, so, year before last. So before. that one I really liked. Most of his stuff, Golden Exits, not so much, but most of his work I like quite a bit, as much as it is sort of deadpan and acerbic and quite dark uh, humour-wise as well. This one, The Colour Wheel, is by rights not his first feature there's a movie called Impolex which I probably oh, I imagine is quite hard to get hold of that I haven't seen but this one I think the breakout on the festival scene at least the colour wheel um 
It is a good movie, I think. Um, it's a film that tells the story of a brother and sister who are estranged and they basically go on a road trip together, which brings them closer. And I won't go any further. Uh, the two people in question are played by Alex Ross Perry himself and an actress called Carlin Altman, where you see Carlin Altman in the first few minutes of the movie and you think, oh, she must have gone on to be in loads of great indie stuff. And then that has not been the case. Carlin Altman's doing just fine. She seems to have been um, really leaning into sort of uh, natural living and a lot of uh, sort of energy related stuff. Uh, no disrespect meant. I uh, I commented to Carlin Altman herself on social media that I liked her performance in the movie and liked the movie, and she got back in touch, which I think is the kind of lovely little feature you get when you you know get into movies <laughs> that don't have a massive audience like this one. Uh, she also uh, liked a, a post that I'd made on uh, MF Doom, which uh, just makes her cooler in my eyes. But all of this is to <laughs> nice. to say that we've got these two people who basically don't fit anywhere in society. Both of them struggle socially. Both of them tend to alienate people, upset people, uh, maybe weird people out. And amongst the people that they meet, there are a load of like strange characters like Alex Ross Perry, more than in any other work that I've seen of his, writes these these oddities. There's a guy at the desk of a low rent motel that they want to stay at together who won't rent them a, uh, a couple's room, like a single room, unless they are a married couple, because this would mean that they may be living in some kind of sin. Of course, as brother and sister, uh, they think that therefore they need to keep up the... Um, facade that they're married and then he points to a sign behind the desk that says all married couples must kiss to prove authenticity or something like that so yeah there's like these quirky little touches to the movie it culminates uh, somewhat in a house party which goes awry and then in a scene that is um uh Let's let's just say controversial, Paul. Let's just say controversial and let listeners dive in for themselves. The Colour Wheel is on Mubi right now. For the lead performances alone, I would give this one a look. For the writing and sort of blossoming talent of Alex Ross Perry, still at this stage, younger than me, I think, 35, something like that. And, and with all of this good work behind him, I think he's a director that a lot of our listeners would be interested in if you haven't dived in already. But yeah, that one's The Colour Wheel. It's on Mubi. Paul, what have you got first? Uh, the first one for me is a film from 2017 that I've been meaning to watch since it came out and just never got to it for some unknown reason. This is Lucky, uh, directed by John Carroll Lynch, and I believe the last film of the legendary Harry Dean Stanton. Um, John Carroll Lynch uh, directed this, and which is entertaining, considering there are moments in this that do feel quite Lynchian, I have to say. Um, kind of Lynch light, I would say, is for want of it, if I'm looking for sort of two words to throw together to to level some meaning at this. Um, it's a very it's a very heartfelt story. Um, uh, Harry Dean Stanton plays a 90 year old um, atheist, um, and it's kind of just him kind of making making his way through his life in this kind of small town where he's um, obviously lived for many many years, dealing with things that are changing, dealing with the fact that he's uh, kind of he's definitely I think in touch with his own sense of mortality here. But it's a it's a brilliant uh, and at times cantankerous performance from Harry Dean Stanton, who clearly is. It just feels like the perfect, almost the perfect send off for him. Um, and there's incredible kind of sub characters turn up. David Lynch does turn up in this. Um, uh, he's he's very sad. He meets him in a bar. He's very sad that he's lost his pet tortoise, uh, who seems to have wandered away from him. So that's that's a delight. You've got just a, a really nice, really nice cast here as well. You've got Ron Livingston, Ed Begley Jr., Tom Skerritt turns up in this. Um, yeah, you've got some really, really, really nice performances. Really, really quite at times very, very funny. At times quite sad, 
but ultimately a very I think a very very strong film and a, a, yeah definitely one of Tarantino's strongest performances I think I think it's uh, if you haven't caught up with it yet it is actually on movie at the moment um, so check it out it's really good yeah it, it sounds to me like this is a Harrington Stanton as leading man thing which we've not really had since what like Paris Texas yeah I, I would guess. say that's probably fair because he's sort of the perennial character actor and and you know on the on the sidelines to some extent as much as he is massively beloved or uh, well, continues to be massively beloved, of course. Uh, something that I don't, I wouldn't describe as massively beloved is my next one, Paul. It's uh, Arizona. Uh, this one is a vehicle of sorts, I guess, for the comedic stylings of Danny McBride. I've gone back to Danny McBride recently because I introduced my wife to Eastbound and Down, which I would still contend is the best thing that he's ever done. And I mean, there's four series of it. So there's enough time to hang around with Kenny Powers there to know that this is a guy that, <laughs> you know, you, you either find entertaining or wildly offensive. Um, in this thing though uh, we've got the story of sort of the housing crisis in of course uh, the titular Arizona and a woman played by Rosemary DeWitt is a realtor I, I like Rosemary DeWitt quite a lot Paul I've talked about her a few times on the show um not least working with, for example, Lynn Shelton. Lynn Shelton is a much better director than your boy Jonathan Watson, who apparently directed this. And criminally, Rosemary DeWitt is really underused here. I don't think the role really works to her strengths. However, she comes into some bother because a disgruntled, to say the least, um, purchaser, former purchaser of one of her properties in Arizona, for which she uh, represents a, a realty company, uh, owned... Um, strangely, I guess, surprisingly by Seth Rogen, uh, a character played by Seth Rogen in this thing for two minutes, uh, is, um, yeah, responsible basically for selling people a load of dud properties at a time when the housing market was completely tanking. And so Danny McBride's character takes this uh, these matters into his own hands and decides to sort of accidentally go on a murder rampage. Uh, each murder, each uh, killing that he commits seems to be a sort of... Um, series of accidents or just uh, you know being overzealous or careless you know how it goes when you accidentally murder six or seven <laughs> people uh, which being a bit unlucky i guess um i just it didn't it didn't make me laugh very much i mean caitlin olsen shows up in this thing for a second um and you think well this will be brilliant i even said at the time oh caitlin olsen's here this would be great uh yeah it just doesn't doesn't really add up to very much um i don't think danny mcbride even has got sort of the um the force of will to make this thing funnier or more biting or more satirical than it ends up being. Um, and maybe as much as it was intended to be. So it's a bit of an odd one, really, Arizona. And one that I think has just sort of dropped off the map for a couple of years and now resurfaced because it's on Netflix, I guess. But have you seen this yet? No, I haven't. No, um, I didn't know anything about it, to be honest. But Danny McBride is someone I normally, is a presence I normally enjoy on screen. Uh, but mm. it doesn't sound great from what you've said. <laughs> oh, and Luke Wilson's in it as well. I like Luke, Luke Wilson just fine. Lots of people you like in here, and you think it's going to add up to something. Like I say, not not so much. But, I mean, check it out for yourselves. Tell me I'm wrong. Paul, what have you got next? Uh, this is a short film. Uh, this is Meshes of the Afternoon, uh, directed by Maya Derin and Alexander Hamid. Um, this is, again, this is another one on Mubi. Uh, I blow hot and cold with Mubi, not, not because of the stuff they put out, just because sometimes I find myself going on there and watching loads and loads and loads, and then I kind of put it down for a while, which is quite a good way to use it, to be honest. But um, yeah, this 
Mrs. Meshes of the Afternoon, which is a film that I last saw back on my film studies degree sitting in a lecture hall. Um, so it was quite interesting. I was like, oh, I recognise that. I'm going to give that another watch. It's fucking superb. I'm going to, not going to make any, any bones about it. It's, it's she, Maya Deren is one of the, I'd say, early pioneers of the avant-garde cinema movement with, for sure. Um, this, the visuals here are, are absolutely fantastic. Um, it's way ahead of its time in kind of its creepy dream sequences. The film's very, very incredibly, incredibly atmospheric. Um, performances are great. It, it looks fantastic. And it's just, um, yeah, it's, is ultimately a very creepy dream sequence that feels very much like you are in a dream. Um, it's 14 minutes that will have you hooked from from beginning to end. So if you haven't checked out uh, Maya Deren's work, then Meshes of the Afternoon is a good place to start. It's a really, really strong film. Um, and yeah, give you know, give it give it a chance. If you haven't thought to give her work a chance, if you haven't thought to give avant-garde films a chance, then Meshes of the Afternoon is a really good place to start because it's a cracker. Nice. Um, I hate to do this same link, Paul, but this one isn't a cracker. Um, if, if, <laughs> I just want to read you a few film titles and get you really hype for what I'm going to talk about. So imagine yourself, 2001, Along Came a Spider. Remember, it's amazing, wasn't it? Then you give the same director, the James Bond reigns, and you get Die Another Day, probably the best Bond film. I think we'll be in agreement on that one. And then could you top that? Well, yes, sir, you could by making Triple X2 the next level. Coming off the back of that trio of absolute bangers, we have uh, Lee Tamahori's uh, directorial feature next. Uh, have you seen this? No, I nearly. After reading your letterbox review, I nearly watched it last night, and I watched uh, I watched an avant-garde short film instead. Oh, it's it's <laughs> icky and weird, Paul. Don't do it. Um, yeah, or or have a few beers and do, I guess. But like, the, okay, I've said this before, but I'm going to make this very clear. I'm not on board. I'm not on the bus that is everyone going, oh, Nick Cage, that thing is so funny when Nick Cage is in a film and he's like shit at acting and he still gets paid and gets loads of roles. Isn't it hilarious? No, it isn't. Nick Cage has been really good in some stuff. He's really good in adaptation. He's been good here and there in the past. I was kind of tired of the Nick Cage turns it up to 11, does kind of bad, bad acting so bad it's good stuff with fucking Xander Lee and like Wild at Heart in the 90s. And we're still doing this dance now. And I mean, albeit the film Next was made in 2007, so we're full 13 years removed. And yeah, things like Mandy are like distractingly weird and a bit better, I guess, for it. Colour Out of Space was kind of wacky. And so, you know, but those are more directors doing something more interesting. You've still got Nick Cage just screaming at everything and being sort of blank as if he's had some sort of He's got some sort of condition in his face that means he can't move any of the muscles. In Next, Paul, this guy, Nick Cage, plays a guy who can see into the future, but only by two or three minutes. And <laughs> I swear to God, the main function for that having that ability in the hands of the people that made this here film is that he then uses it in a kind of uh, Bill Murray in Groundhog Day fashion with Andy McDowell in that case to seduce a woman a woman played by Jessica Biel, who is about half of his age when this film was made, you know, perhaps uh, not so now. But it's it's gross, man. Like you've got this kind of stratospherically gorgeous woman and then you've got Nick Cage rocking weird sort of sub shoulder length hair looking like he's been on about a 17 day bender and he's kind of slightly <laughs> maladjusted to the world around him, which is his general look anyway. 
And uh, yeah, he just he just plays out like what's going to happen each way I approach this inappropriately young woman until he finds a sequence of events that can hopefully get him into her pants. It's really weird. I mean, Julianne Moore's in the movie trying her best to sort of look into the middle distance and look as if something... So is that is that really the premise? Is that really the, the focus of what he can do with this superpower, I guess? Or... <laughs> No, no, of course not, Paul, of course not. It's like, oh, there are some bad guys and he's going to, you know, help the FBI or CIA or something. Julianne Moore plays a, a higher up at that organisation who, like I say, just does a load of sort of middle distance serious faces to try and <laughs> mask the fact that she knows she's just picking up a check. I mean, it, it it's trash, but it's trash that also makes you feel a bit creeped out. And it's also one of those movies that's trash and doesn't even have the decency to do kind of set piece stuff and explain explosions in a way that's you know just at least adequately well shot and engaging and entertaining so yeah I remember I think it was Mark Kermode who had the review or maybe it was stolen and, and regurgitated the review to this film which is simply the word next and Paul next what have you got next up I have the devil all the time uh this is a Netflix release that I think came out last year Pete did we talk about this on the show when it first came out I've got a feeling it was a 2020 release I, I think uh, so this is yeah. directed by Antonia Campos uh and starring like a list of stars like you'd like every time another person appeared it was just uh, it was an impressive list so we've got Bill Skarsgård Tom Holland Hayley Bennett, Sebastian Stan, Riley Keeler, Jason Clark, Eliza Scanlon, Robert Pattinson. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of famous people in there, and, that's, and there's 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 more faces that appear. Um, yeah, I kind of I do remember you talking about this at, at the time, so I won't um, I won't stand, stay on this one for very long. Um, the Devil All the Time is a hundred percent an appropriate title for this film. I think there's you know it's it's a very dark thriller. Um, there's a number of a number of character stories who all had a varying varying different traumas happen to them, um, kind of pulled together in this town and kind of and how these people interact and how the devil is. The, I mean, all in this film should be capitalized, underlined, and put into bold. The devil all the time, because this is it's a it's a strongly acted film. I think Patterson's great. It's nice to see Tom Holland do some darker work with without a doubt, and I think he's good here. Um, and it's it's well directed certainly, but it is grim. It is unrelentingly bleak for kind of two hours twenty minutes. I think when it's I think probably after the first half an hour, it it almost had a similar problem. Almost veered into kind of self parody self parody parody territory because it became so bleak and sort of bad events kept happening that I I almost struggled to stick with it. But I stuck with it and I think it was worth it. Uh, but it is it's a good film but it's not an easy watch and I don't think it's something I'll go back to in a hurry um, any thoughts has it lingered with you Pete or is it yeah I mean I think you basically covered it I mean I, I just I felt it was it was it didn't amount to very much really I felt like like you said you know the devil all the time yeah it's like you know awful behavior towards your fellow man or and woman uh, again and again and again in different ways and look how we're all connected and sort of religious undertones and stuff. Like that's how, how it came across. I, I thought of it as sort of minor um, and I, I would say enjoyable, but it's it's a strange adjective to use for a film like that. So um, th yeah, there were bits and pieces there that I liked, but as a whole, it's I've forgotten it mostly. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's probably fair. And I think, yeah, the, you know, the point it's trying to make is yeah, the devil all the time. Do un do bad unto other people, and bad things will happen to you. Sort of rinse and repeat for two hours twenty minutes, which you know does make it a, 
slightly hard to watch. But yeah, decent performances. I thought I thought it was a, a I thought it was a solid solid film that I came away from. I don't regret watching it. I don't think it's a bad film. But I, yeah, I think it, some moments of levity wouldn't have hurt. I think is it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think people should check it out. It's probably worth the time, isn't it? Because it's still on Netflix. Performances right? wise, it's well worth it's well worth a look because that's a, certainly a great cast. Pattinson is a kind of creepy preacher. Is is superb. Um, that's another thing to add out. So yeah, so if you've got Netflix and haven't seen it, definitely definitely give it a look. Uh, but you've got to be in the right mood. <laughs> uh, likewise, for my last one this week, Paul. This one um, all about Nina. Uh, All About Nina, I believe, is currently on Netflix as well. Yes, it is. Uh, This is from writer-director Eva Vives. Um, It is very much a vehicle for the talents of Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Paul, did you ever see that movie Smashed with Aaron Paul and Mary Elizabeth Winstead as alcoholic? Uh, No, I don't think I have. So the, the reason I mention it is, first of all, it's decent, check it out, but is also the fact that this performance really builds on that one. Here we've got Mary Elizabeth Winstead playing a circuit comic on the like alt comedy circuit in the US. So playing like smaller clubs to audiences and building up her following and hoping perhaps to go on to bigger and better things. Although maybe a controversial uh, accusation to level an alt comic on the American scene. But uh, so she goes out, she, you know, hits crowds hard. It's very much like making jokes straight up from the beginning of the film. She's making jokes about menstruation and shitting and the combination of the two looking like a scene from Saving Private Ryan, I think she talks about at one point. And so like sort of confrontational, um, going toe to toe with male comics who dominate kind of stuff. But in the background, she is drinking and drinking and drinking. Partly it seems like to control her nerves perhaps and partly quite clearly to hold down or suppress past trauma of a sort that we don't exactly know um, the nature and then into her orbit at a certain point comes a new potential uh, love interest is the wrong way to put it she's kind of hooking up with people there's sort of a lot of meaning meaningless hookups going on um, she's being approached by people and knocking them back and then ending up with the wrong people anyway but she meets this guy played by caramel tongued uh the uh, actor uh, uh i want to say common and i feel like i'm going to say the wrong name no that is right isn't it um, but yeah, uh, th- this guy anyway comes onto the scene and he seems to be like both straightforward in the way he describes himself as like a flawed individual also, um, and relatable to her in that regard, but also, uh, loving and caring and, and supportive in a way that Nina, the Elizabeth Winstead character is, is not really familiar with. And, it looks like then this might go the way of sort of slightly schmaltzy rom-com-ish with a slightly darker tone. It's not quite that, and it's not quite that for the better. Um, the film builds to a pretty climactic, um, pretty uh, affecting, I think, monologue on stage under the lights in front of sort of twitching audience members who don't quite know where to look when Nina goes off script and starts talking. Not unlike something like, the, who was that comic that everybody, um, you know the one, Paul, Netflix comic who put out an hour and it was su- supposedly not comedy. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, um Hannah Gadsby, yeah. Hannah Gadsby, yeah, yeah. right. Not unlike that. It might be a reference point here, perhaps. And um, at that point, 
it feels like the film probably ought to end. Uh, tacked on at the end is this bit with a stand-in for Lorne Michaels, the guy who commissions and created Saturday Night Live, which doesn't really feel like it needs to be there and kind of comes off a little bit inauthentic, I, I felt. Um, but the movie itself, as a study of someone who is trying to hold things down all the time, and he's trying to push down trauma and he's trying to put alcohol or, um, you know, uh, hookups or whatever it might be on top of all the sadness and the emptiness inside. I thought it was pretty compelling. And I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead at her best is really, really good. And this is one of those that I think people should check out if they're in any doubt about that fact. Uh, this one is all about Nina. It's on Netflix at the moment. It's been out a couple of years, but I wasn't aware that it was sort of available until now. It's a 2018 movie. Check it out if that sounds interesting. Nice. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, Popcorn Movies for this week. Uh, we're going to take a brief break now, and then we'll be back with our first of our feature reviews, which is News of the World. Back after this. So we are back with the first of two feature reviews this week. These are always films that both Paul and I have seen and we want to give our thoughts in a little bit more detail than popcorn movies. First up on the slate today, News of the World. This one from writer-director Paul Greengrass. He co-wrote this with Luke Davies, a man who worked on uh, things such as Lion, Candy as well in the past, a film that I think we both liked, uh, or in both cases actually. But here, teaming up with Greengrass, he tells the story of a Civil War veteran. The year is 1870 that civil war veteran is played by uh well everybody's own tom hanks uh who is journeying across the state of texas uh, predominantly within the movie and his accompaniment on that journey is a young girl who was taken in by the kiowa native american people and seems to have been originally of german at least european descent the two take on a journey that leads them through some scrapes some difficulties some run-ins and perhaps to a point of being somewhat enlightened on both sides of the relationship albeit a very odd couple relationship as it clearly is one of them being an older man one being a, a very young girl here the girl in question is played by helena zengel who i'm led to believe was so great in system crasher not a movie that i've caught up with yet paul have you seen that thing no not yet well we will get to that and review it on this here show probably in popcorn movies but before we have the chance to do that let's dig into this one we'll get to our review and thoughts on news of the world right after a little clip i'm here to tell you about the 11 men who lived yeah who survived that fire. The 11 men who fought back against their deadly fate. Yes. Yes. God, I told you to read from the Iraq, Pat. Well, see, Mr. Farley, I was wondering if folks might prefer some storytelling from places outside of Iraq. Just for tonight, Mr. Farley. I think you ought to read from the Iraq all the same, Captain. Sort of thing these people expect to hear so i think that the first thing i wanted to talk about when, when it comes to news of the world is i mean this is a paul greengrass film he's a director that i'm a, a huge fan of generally speaking i'd love to work on the Bourne films um flight united 93 was was superb um and i just i think he's he's a, he's a very very strong director he's normally got uh quite a frenetic visual style and his films normally move at uh 
a very rapid pace. So the first thing that jumped out at me on this one was the just the pace of the film was a big, big departure from what we expect from Paul Greengrass. I think this is the first time, uh, possibly the first time Paul Greengrass has made a Western. I think it's the first time Tom Hanks has actually led a Western. Um, so that's that's quite interesting. Uh, but the pace of this, I think, is yeah definitely stood out for me um, as being very, very unapologetically slow, which I think has harmed this in certain reviews I've read of this, and I think some of its critical reception I think has been harmed by the fact that it's been accused of being a bit monotonous and probably too slow for its own good. Um, I don't agree with that, but I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on that, Pete. Yeah, and I mean, let, let's let's uh, counterbalance this by saying the meta score on this thing at the moment is 73, which would indicate sort of fairly universal praise, but you're right that right. there has been, it seems like the prevailing criticism is maybe it is a bit slow maybe it drags a little bit maybe it's uh, less riveting uh, let's say than than other paul greengrass projects i mean of course you know some of those projects a lot of those projects on uh, in greengrass's back catalog are incredibly serious works but then sprinkled in there you've got things like the born films which are just sort of rip roaring action and hella shaky camera and a bit of seasickness along the way um yeah, I, for me, it wasn't really a problem. I mean, there were definitely sections of the movie where I forgot that this was a Paul Greengrass film, but who cares? I mean, that's fine for me. I, I don't need to be reminded who I'm watching and neither do I wish to sort of frame every film through the lens of all the previous work of the director as much as it can be, you know, somewhat informing on what you might think. But I think basically, for me, the film stands or falls on the strength of the relationship between the two leads. And I think here, we all know that Tom Hanks can act all right. And uh, Helena Zengel <laughs> yeah. does a great job of being a foil for his acting and actually going fairly toe-to-toe -to -toe with him in terms of really establishing her own character rather than being her character in relation to him, which I think is really important here. Seeing as this thing is bringing together sort of more than two worlds in some ways, given her background and, and sort of family history as we've had it sketched out in the, the early part of the film. So um, I, I liked spending time with them and I liked spending time in this environment. I liked the sort of sweeping vistas and that's often why, for me anyway, I might be attracted to a Western every now and again, is to have that sense of scope. I mean, Having said that, it's a bit of a shame, um, and you mentioned this at the top of the show, Paul, that we in the UK won't be or haven't been able to see this on a big screen, but rather at home, in your case, on a pretty big screen. On my, in my case, a significantly smaller and lower quality screen. But <laughs> nonetheless, you get a sense for the, the scale of the journey, the scale of the challenge, and the kind of... Um, the sort of grittiness, I guess, to an extent of what these people are going through, despite the fact that this is pretty down the middle, pretty crowd pleasing sort of family fair, I would say, for the most part. Uh, it's a 12A certificate for what it's worth. I mean, but Paul, for you, that central relationship, did it? Did it work? Did, were you engaged the whole time with the movie? I suppose more broadly. Uh, yes, I, yeah, I, I would say I would say I was, and I think that you know, coming back to the pace thing, which you started talking about, I think the slow pace here. I think it's a film that demands patience from its audience, and I think if you give it the patience that it deserves, I think that that adds a more weight to this relationship. I think if you if you'd rushed this, then I don't think you'd have bought into the fact that the Tom Hanks character and the Helen Zengel character would have actually formed any bond at all, because they are they're two very very different characters, um, and 
and the Helena Zengel character, the young girl, the, there was if they'd rushed this, there'd be no reason for her to warm to Tom Hanks's character, sort of father figure at all. So I think the you know it takes its time building this relationship, and it, it enables you to spend a lot of time with these characters and a lot of time with some strong performances. So. Um, I yeah I came out of it yeah really really buying into the relationship and I found it quite a, quite a heartwarming at times at times it skewed a little darker than I was expecting I have to say um, but not necessarily in a bad way but I yeah I think the, the the relationship and the performances are definitely the the heart of the film um, and I think it delivered I think it delivers that that really really well mm. and I mean, yeah I mean I touched on the the cinematography did that stuff stand out for you as well because I mean we're kind of spoiled in this day and age. We are kind of spoiled by what is achievable with the kind of technology at the disposal of directors and cinematographers. In this case, cinematographer is uh, Darius Volsky, who's worked on stuff like um, The Martian, for example. So sort of barren landscapes, nothing new to this guy. Uh, was the cinematographer on Prometheus, Sicario 2. So has like done stuff before that looks pretty fantastic was that a major factor for you or do you think it was middling in comparison to to similar types of films no i don't think it was middling in the slightest i mean i'm lucky enough to see it in 4k uh, on netflix and the film really really pops it does look it does look fantastic um and this technical presentation on netflix ultimately we've, we've talked about this before they're putting out films that if you they're putting out films on netflix that can look better than they do on a bit on a cinema screen it's not quite this competing size of a cinema screen don't get me wrong it still plays second fiddle to a cinema experience in my book but yeah this film looked it looked fantastic um i really like the vistas it's you know there's there's definitely a classic a classic western vibe to this with albeit with the pacing with the sweeping vistas with this sort of the character of Tom Hanks is he? I don't know whether he's with is he seeking redemption for things that he's done. Like you've got that kind of the 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 character with a past. You've got all of the all of the callbacks to, to checking the boxes from from the classic western here. And yeah, the cinematography absolutely is um is on point on this one. I thought the film looked um I thought the film looked great from start to finish. Yeah, and I mean if you look for it, and you don't have to look particularly hard, there are of course. Cap, cap, block capitals messages here i mean the the fact that they have i think the best piece for me of dialogue in the film is the um sequence in which hank the hank's character zengel character are talking about or attempting to communicate let's say across a significant language barrier about um how we see the world and he talks about seeing the world in straight lines we see the path we move forward we keep moving and we don't stop whereas she mentions well two things that seem incredibly insightful uh one of which is you know without remembering the past you can't move forward and uh the other one is where she says that she sees the world more or they he understands that she says uh, she sees the more the world more as a circle um as a as a dome i think she says originally but as a circle and uh, some sort of holistic understanding of the world which might seem a little bit glib or twee and yeah that that could be a, you know an accusation to to perhaps level at the the sketching of that character but for me that was quite elegant stuff you know um in terms of a, a sort of comment on where we are now um in terms of not only the current political situation but more so things like uh, the environmentalist movement and the concern for the planet rather than pure progress um and i think that greengrass is concerned with those things and i think that that comes across uh, along with luke davis as i said as co-screenwriter here but um yeah the elegant moments like that i would say paul and i, I want to hear your comeback or your side or your take on this that, that there's something of the film that to me it wasn't that it was dull per se it wasn't that it was too slow uh really that that wouldn't be my criticism anyway but perhaps at times um it felt 
sort of gentle um, and dare I say a little predictable um, and it doesn't have to be a huge problem. I, and like I say, enjoyed elements of the production for sure. But we sort of know from the opening 10 to 15 minutes kind of where this thing's going. Um, and we go along for the ride because this is, you know, the beloved Tom Hanks. Uh, I, I don't know that I'd rush to rewatch News of the World. Um, and that's not some horrible damning criticism, but I wonder what you think. Like, did, did this really get your juices flowing for one of a better term. No, I do I do see where you're coming from. I think it's yeah, I don't think it's a film I'd necessarily rush rush to watch again. I think there are moments where it it kind of it, it is taken you you've alluded to the fact that it's kind of hitting you over well, there's moments where it lacks subtlety, I think, in some of its messaging. At the time I was just when I was watching it, I was like, hmm, clever. Good good point, good point where they're talking about so Tom Hanks basically essentially reads the news um to people that pay him a number of cents to read the news he brings a number of sort of state newspapers with him um and then he happens across like this community of people led by this uh led by an obviously painted kind of villainous character who wants him to read this news that newspaper is essentially commissioned about himself and then he's reading the news and then Tom Hanks' character makes this big statement about should which news should we listen to and at the time I thought that's quite clever and then the more I think about it the more I think it lacks a bit of subtlety in places um like it, it is relevant to today I do see what they were trying to do with it but perhaps a slightly more subtle reading of that might have benefited the film um I don't think it's yeah it's it, I, go, going back to your point uh, I don't think it's Greengrass's best work um but not you know not every film has to be a director's best film by 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 a long shot I thought it was solid and enjoyable film but yeah not one I'd necessarily rush to go back to uh, maybe in a few years time um just to see how good it looks because it does look great um but I'd say there's there's other Paul Greengrass films I'd watch over and above this one again, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, the the bits that do spark into sort of action, because, you know, let's not be mistaken here, there, there are moments of action, there are, you know, scuffles and gunfights and, and a bit of peril here and there. Uh, there. There's a sequence on a sort of um, ridge with a boulder that I think there was at least one fairly dodgy... Uh, special effects shot there um blink and you'd miss it but i i was a bit um underwhelmed maybe by that sequence it feels like a sequence that could have been done entirely practically and i don't think it was um but you know uh, who am i to say i'm no expert i yeah it, it bobbed along it bobbed along just fine um I, I i suppose sometimes because i've still got that sort of bristly prickishness from being like i don't know 20 years old in me there is something where you know I guess I've said it a number of times and maybe I'm, I'm protesting too much in this thing, but like when everybody is so, oh, Tom Hanks is in it. Isn't he a great actor? Here's Tom Hanks. And I, <laughs> and I kind of think like, you know, sort of granddad Hanks sort of giving some wor world weary words for two hours is not always the first thing that I'm going to rush to as much as I respect the man. I think he's done really great work. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't necessarily get me going all the time. So like you said, I think solid is a pretty good description of this. Um, I think for me, there'll, there'll certainly be many people who like it more than I did. Um, but then, you know, let's also remember Paul Greengrass is a director pushing 70 years of age. And I mean, you're not going to get the, the, the sort of perhaps crackle of earlier uh, Greengrass work. Um, and that's not to say that I expected this thing to be shaky cameras and constant, you know, um, edits like tight edits and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it was it, it was all right. 
was all right. I liked it just fine, I guess. <laughs> it was all right, yeah. No, I'd say I liked it. I liked it a bit more than all right. This is a, it's a new rating system now. We won't do star ratings, but it's certain le- different levels of all right, different different intonations of the word all right. Uh, is how we're going to start with it. We're not. Um, no, I thought, uh, yeah, I thought it was solid, enjoyable, well acted. Although, again, I agree this, this kind of role isn't a stretch for Tom Hanks. And he's not doing anything here that we haven't seen him do many times before. He does this very well. Um, Helena Zengel, I thought, came out of this really, really well. I think I think she's definitely a, absolutely a talent to watch. Um, yeah, a solid, a solid Western. It's just, for me, I'm just happy to see a Western again, to be honest. So, um, yeah, yeah, see a Western that looks this good on screen, uh, I, you know, makes makes me happy. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and we're so meta on this show, Paul, that people might not have noticed, but what we've done there is we've delivered a fairly rambling, sort of meandering review with a few high points, which we planned <laughs> to represent the way that News of the World pans out. So, yeah, check it out. Let us know if we've been too harsh, if we've been fair. Uh, it sounds like, Paul, you, you were a little bit more of a fan than me, but uh, both of us definitely, I think, a little bit more thumbs up than thumbs down. Not that we do that either. I think Roger Ebert probably trademarked it. Right. We've got another feature to get to. It will come up after a little break. It's of an entirely different sort. After the break, we will review Kathy Yan's movie, Dead Pigs, after this. And we're back with the uh, last feature review of this week's show. This is a film called Dead Pigs, directed by Kathy Yan, who I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, went on after making this to direct uh, Birds of Prey, the Harley Quinn film, which I think we both rather enjoyed last year. Uh, but this was weirdly buried. It seems to be buried from international release, certainly, and uh, Mubi have just picked it up. So um, it's good to be able to see it. Uh, thanks to Mubi for putting it out. Um, we're not paid by Mubi. We do like the platform a lot. So it's always nice to see it when um, when streaming services are picking up films like this. But enough about where we've seen it. Uh, Pete, set this one up for us. Yeah, it's almost as if Kathy Ann's film Dead Pigs was thrown into the river um, and abandoned and then later resurfaced and people had to pay attention. Gosh, <laughs> what a segue. Uh, yes, so how, how on earth? to set this up. So uh, Dead Pigs is a film set in uh, mainland China and it tells the story that's sort of a rip from the headlines true story about a load of swine, a load of pigs that were found uh, washed up on the banks of the river, I believe in Shanghai, uh, as a result of some kind of blight and um, it perhaps wasn't clear at first what had killed all these pigs. This is used by the director as a jumping off point for a story where lives intersect. Uh, We've got this sort of pinballing narrative between a set of, I think, sort of four or five main characters, one of which is a pig farmer who indeed throws some of his dead pigs into the river and tries to forget about them. But this has a knock on effect because he can't make money from his pigs. He needs that money to pay back debt on a bad investment, the investment being in a virtual reality system that seems something like Vive. Uh, More on that later. Uh, Into the mix as well is his son. His son works as a busboy. He accidentally bumps into a very rich girl and spills a drink, I think, at a a high-end restaurant where he's bussing tables. Uh, They form an unlikely bond. Um, He needs to raise money for his father. He's going to do this with a sort of insurance fraud type scam where he basically dives in front of cars and tries to get hit by them for insurance. Uh, You've also got an architect, and this is important, an architect who is 
the, the, the white man, the white man who's uh, over in mainland China because he is fronting up a project which is going to launch or open up uh, to the public a new development, a glistening new development, which is styled um, in the image of the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, <laughs> Spain. A, uh, it's a great gag, to be fair. It yeah, it's like a, like a full scale-ish replica, I, I think, of that. That guy is played by David Reisdahl. David Reisdahl is the real life boyfriend of one Zazi Bates. Zazi Bates is kind of in this film, although definitely not the headlining act that you might be led to believe by some of the uh, publicity, at least in the West. Uh, she plays a woman who seemingly not so much head hunts, but face hunts uh, old white faces to get them to front up Chinese business ventures in order to lend them credibility and a sort of international flavour. Now, if that sounds like an awful lot, and I've probably missed out some of the machinations of this thing, that's because that is what it is. It's an awful lot of a lot. Uh, we'll get into exactly what of that we liked, what we didn't like, our full thoughts right after a little clip. My life is beginning to improve. I am a happy and successful person. So, I mean, where to start with with that introduction, to be honest? It's a difficult film. Uh, I think it's a difficult film to, to review because there is kind of so much going on. Um, I think where, where I will start is probably... One of the positives I like about this is I, I really like the fact that this is this is definitely a film that's not afraid to kind of look at look at where Chinese society where sort of modern China is heading and the clash between kind of uh, traditional sort of Chinese culture and the you know the the massive the massive boom of capitalism that's certainly happening in China at the moment and has been happening for the past number of years um, and I think the film the film isn't afraid to sort of poke fun at that which I think is which is quite nice in terms of this the whole kind of this this massive housing complex that they want to develop with the um with the with the replica of Barcelona essentially in the center of it to try and attract a more Western trying to attract to more Western people to relocate to make it more like Spain. Like it's it's kind of silly. It's actually quite clever because I it's the kind of thing I can imagine if you've ever been to Dubai, it's the kind of crap they do over there. Like it's it's a slightly more exaggerated version of that, but it's the kind of thing that they will manufacture and the kind of silly thing that you'd be surprised to know that they actually do. Um so I like I like I liked that. I like the fact it's kind of poking fun at the the rise of capitalism. I thought that was good, um, and there's some and that leads to some really nice visuals as well. When you've got the young the young rich uh, the young rich female character, um, kind of looking over looking over Shanghai. Um, yeah, there's some really, at least there's some really nice visual moments. Pete, did you appreciate those elements of it? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, I did. I was really intrigued by this movie when um, it it started because of you know as you've said um, earlier, Paul, that that Kathy Ann is is now well known for the the Harley Quinn movie, um, and this is the first chance I've had, um, and I think we have basically had in the UK to catch up with this one. I was really intrigued because of this setup, because of this kind of West meets East thing, because of the way she was like riffing on the way the white character plays against a backdrop that when you're focusing on that guy, you kind of use him as your, as a Western white viewer, I guess, you kind of use him as your in and your proxy in the situation. So it's like, yeah, isn't this absurd? Isn't everything sort of over the top in terms of the development and the 
the ridiculous reach of this envelop- uh, development. And then, of course, you know, in the wake of something like the Beijing Olympics, the way that people are just getting bull- like literally bulldozed out of the way for the future. Um, you know, talking about news of the world, we go forward in a straight line and we just keep going. I mean, that's very relevant here to the, the movie and the progress in that part of the world as well. Um, I think what yeah, and I wanted to say also, fantastic artwork on the the cover of uh, or the poster for Dead Pigs with a smash piggy bank, which is sort of another meaning of Dead Pigs that I hadn't really considered mm. when thinking about the film. So I think it's quite a clever visual gag. But yeah, I, I think that this is a good film by clearly a very talented young director. And I think that there are an awful lot of plates spinning here. And I think that there are a lot of comments being made on a lot of things. And if I were to have sort of an overarching criticism of Dead Pigs, it would be that none of it is really developed that far. It's got this kind of tongue-in-cheek, like, glibness about it, which on the one hand makes it seem like it's going to be a sort of wacky, out-there tale. But then on the other hand, it wants to be more like a Dark Waters kind of serious, you know, corporate greed gone too far type uh, social concern sort of movie. And I don't know that it ever very well strikes that balance or goes one way or the other, actually, would be better for me, commits to one or the other thing. Um, so in the end, the for me, the wacky parts aren't wacky enough. The jokes aren't funny enough. And then the social commentary and satire isn't cutting enough or insightful enough. So it gets kind of caught between a number of posts. And that seems like I'm being horrible about the film. But can I reiterate, this is a film from a director who at the time was barely, what, 30 years of age and making her first feature film. And I mean, the scope of this thing for someone at that age who hasn't made a feature before is astonishing. Astonishing. I mean, she's had a lot of support clearly here, um, but it's kind of an astonishing thing. However, you know, and I don't want to I don't want to bring this in too soon, Paul. But as someone who has been, you know, white faced white man living in Asia for a chunk of my life, uh, there were just points in the movie where I kind of thought like, well, OK, that's that's not plausible at all. But you haven't lent enough into its implausibility for me to not think that you are putting this out there as something that people are going to interpret as really happening. Like, OK, a case in point, And I want to pass back to you because I'm talking too much. The bit where the architect, who is, um, as I mentioned earlier, played by David Reisdahl, this architect who looks, you know, 30 years old, uh, apparently is a sort of the head of this project, massive multi-billion dollar project, apparently heading that up. Or is he? Maybe he's kind of a patsy. Maybe he's just a white face there. He's offered work by the Zazie Bates character to, as I mentioned in the intro, kind of represent Chinese business concerns as the guy at one point, for example, he has to walk out on a catwalk with a designer dog and they say, this guy was on the Millionaire Matchmaker. Um, You know that show. It's a real show, right? Uh, You know that show. He's going to move into the development. So why wouldn't you? But this stuff is like absurd on a couple of levels. Like, why would he take a second job? Architecture is very well paying and he's on a massive project. He'd be minted and he wouldn't have the time. And like, I just, I don't buy that he'd be in that position anyway, that he's supposed to be here. And then, like, the the idea that there is actually a catwalk show for a white guy just to be like, he's moving in, so why don't you? I, I just, I, mm, do, do you understand what I'm saying? About, I do. Like, maybe, I, I, yeah. I do see where you're coming from. And I think it, and, and I just, again, I want to reiterate exactly what you said, Pete. I think it is a good film and I, I came away liking it. 
but I think tonally it it doesn't quite know where it wants to go. I think there's there's moments where it wants to play for absurdist comedy, and there are times when it did make me chuckle, and there's moments where it feels like it wants to play for drama, but I don't think it quite quite knows what what direction to go in. Um, and 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 I, I totally agree with you in terms of the spinning of the plates, like. For example, I mean, I went when I watched this earlier today. I paused it to I paused it to go to the loo. I came back and I was just like, "Oh, there's only half an hour left. How is how is all this going to wrap up?" And I thought maybe just a bit more focus on some elements and maybe maybe just a little bit less going on. I think you'd have had a possibly tighter, more engaging film. Um, and it said it's it's the tone. It's just the, the kind of all over the shop tone. I don't think quite. I don't think it quite nails. I don't think it knew what it wanted to be as a film. I don't think it quite knew whether it wanted to double down on this kind of fairly serious drama about the onset of capitalism and the fact that pig farmers are struggling, um, and and that you know, and that that kind of element of it, or whether it wanted to go sort of as a more absurdist satirical take. Um, I think if I think it would have benefited if it doubled down on one or the other. As it stands, I think as I'm with you. It's a really strong debut. I think the film looks fantastic. The soundtrack's superb as well. I really like the really like the kind of off kilter soundtrack, and I think the performances are strong. I think there's a lot to like here, but I think the tone's muddled. Yeah, I I think that's right, and I think that it would be kind of. Um... Uh, one in a million or almost impossible to expect a first time feature director to have developed the sort of depth and strength of character to do something sort of really bold in terms of taking on something as meaty as this. Not only the original story, which is enough for a feature on its own, like the news story, I mean here, the dead pig story. Yeah. Um, or if it were more just a broad, you know, side swipe at late capitalism gone absolutely mad. Like, I'm I'm not sure there's this the this, this sort of... St- strength of hand or the steadiness of direction here to to achieve both of which you know are massively lofty goals so yeah um I like it I just I kind of like bits and I felt like maybe in the hands of someone else um there would be loads more to dig into here and I feel like some of the response I've heard to it seems a little bit um overblown in terms of I understand people are now aware of Kathy Yan because of the Harley Quinn movie but then suddenly as if this is some you know unearthed gem that is Magnolia for example because lives intersect in the movie where there was a moment in the film where I got that line in my head from the Paul Haggis movie Crash. And this sounds like I'm being horrible, but you know, when, <laughs> yeah. when I don't know even who delivers that line, but they would say, sometimes we crash into each other just to feel alive. And I don't think it's in that voice, to be fair. But, you know, that thing where there was a time around the sort of turn of the century where every other movie seemed to be like, look at these disparate characters. They're completely different, but actually they're all connected because we are all connected. And when we get to that territory, I start to get a bit fucked off with it and so later on it sort of went that way for me and even then Paul I suppose if some of my credit had expired when we get to the you know uh off kilter kooky-ish uh group song towards the end um I just didn't have the goodwill towards it that I might have had otherwise having said all of that I liked it very much I kind of wish that they weren't marketing it as if Zazi Bates is in it for more than about two minutes to be honest because I think it's a bit cheap but um yeah good stuff good stuff for the most part and as you said like this is available on movie now and this may have never seen the light of day at least over here if it hadn't have been for them picking it up so like 
more power to them, more power to Kathy Yan because it's interesting work. It's just the interesting work of a, a developing filmmaker, I think. And, you know, we don't need to go overboard either positively or negatively there. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, another solid effort. There's another grading system we'll have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we talk for like 15 minutes about each film and then we say solid effort and move on to the next one. <laughs> worth a watch. There we go. That's a blast yes, the past. let's yeah. bring it back. Bring it back. Is it worth a watch or is it not worth a watch? That's all we uh, give as our metric. Um, Paul, I suppose about this time, unless you've got anything more to say on Dead Pigs, we should bring it towards the credit section. Any more on this film, or do you want to get into that? Uh, bit? No, it's a ch- check it out. By your, yeah, check absolutely check it out if you have if you're lucky enough to have movie, then check it out. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you disagree with us. It'd be good to hear from people on this one. Uh, I'd be intrigued to see what people think. So um, no, that's that's it from me on Dead Pigs. Nice. Well, in that case, we will roll the credits. Here we give credit to something from the last week that we think is good and doesn't necessarily. Um, see itself limited by the categorization this was a film um, so for me Paul there's only one thing that I could say and I kind of wanted to put it in popcorn movies but I'm going to wedge it in here uh, you go first because I feel like I need to slow my roll and gather myself for my credits uh, recommendation what have you got? Uh, Bojack Horseman um, now I fell out with Bojack Horseman a little bit Not I didn't literally ring Bojack Horseman and have an argument with him I didn't actually fall out with the fictional character of Bojack Horseman because that listeners would be impossible um, I kind of wobbled a bit with Bojack Horseman in series 4 and then stopped watching there's probably a good year or so since I've watched it but I've heard the end is amazing I haven't got there yet but from everything I've read about the end apparently it's one of the, the, the best endings you could hope for uh, and I've got back into the show just finished season five uh, and season five is fantastic again it's it's a brilliant combination of dark and very silly uh, that I don't think any other show has kind of has kind of landed really so um yeah Bojack Horseman uh, Bojack Horseman season five is for me a return to form. Uh, and we're now midway through season six, which I think is the final season. I'm looking forward to seeing how it ends. So yeah, for me this week, it's been Bojack Horseman, which is available on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, it's great. So you should check it out with the exception of season four. Nice. Um, Yes. So uh, the one I wanted to get out of my system for this week uh, is the new series. I'm hardly on the, the cusp of this wave, but the new series from Russell T Davies, this is It's a Sin, which comes in the wake of Years and years, obviously, what, 18 months ago or so now, which was a series that left me in bits at the end. Uh, We Are All Love were maybe the final lines of that thing. Um, Check that out. But this one, as people may may or may not be aware, I guess, at this point, uh, tells the story of a group of friends in the 1980s in London when the uh, AIDS epidemic strikes and the impacts that that has on the group. Um, on a group that is defined as much by their love for life and um, free spirits and um, sort of huge parties and and sort of reveling as they are by the grief and pain and suffering that they go through during the ravages of those years in the 1980s. At the front of this thing is Ollie Alexander, who is just a guy I like, man. Like, I like years and years. I love the band, the group, his group that he fronts. And I love the fact that when he was uh, called in by Russell T. Davis to make this series, he asked why Russell T. Davis had stolen the name of his band for his TV show. And he said, (laughs) well, I'm just a really big fan and I like the name. Uh, And I also love the little... um, Easter egg kind of fact about Ollie Alexander that he's in um, Enter the Void, the Gaspar Noé film, which just seems so weird as a thing to be aware of when you see, you know, where things are with him now. But uh, yeah, It's a Sin Man is like one, it crept up on me because 
Russell T. Davis' work is fantastic. Like as far back as what the late nineties with Queer as Folk, he was doing stuff that was sort of breaking records in terms of what he was putting into his series that was perhaps taboo or not seen elsewhere and the critical response to that work. And here we've got this series that, for example, um, and this is the only example I'll give because I don't want to do like a full blown review. Keely Hawes is in this movie, in this movie, in this series, five part series. Keely Hawes, uh, who is pretty well established on the British dramatic scene now. And for episode after episode, I thought it's strange that she was cast because she's been given very little to do. Oh my goodness, she's given some stuff to do when it comes to the final episode of the show, which is absolutely like bravura stuff. Like it is one of the best episodes of television I've seen in certainly the last few years. And the kind of crying that I experienced at the end of this one, Paul, is since baby teeth, but even baby teeth didn't just fully uh, take over my body in the way that this thing did. It's elegant, it's graceful, it's human. And I, I don't care if I sound like I'm a massive fanboy for Russell T Davis at this point, because this is this was fantastic. And I just wanted to get it on the show, even though we're not a TV show, obviously. Have you seen it yet? No, nor have I seen years and years. So um, back to back to the naughty step for me. Perhaps uh, well, <laughs> perhaps I should watch them. <laughs> do, yes, all I would say, Paul, because I know what you're like. Don't watch them back to back because just don't do that to yourself emotionally. Right. Okay. Leave a bit of, <laughs> of a gap between the series. I would say, but yeah, highly, highly recommended. Really, really good. It's on uh, all four, I think, over here, at Channel Four production. But I believe HBO Max, perhaps. Um, or in on stateside. It seems like three quarters of our listeners are in the States. If you're in the States, I think HBO Max have got it. So uh, find it there. That one's It's a Sin. Uh, that's it for my credit recommendation, Paul. Um, anything more to add this week? No, just if you've if you'd like the show, please do share it. We always uh, like we always like being shared around people other people's ears. That's always a winner in our book. Oh. Um yes, go on. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I just wanted to throw in. We've I don't know if I think maybe you mentioned this last week, but we've got a website up and running again for the show. We have. Um, I was getting to that, but thank you for thank you sorry. for jumping in. I'm, no, I'm overexcited. Yeah, yeah. So strangernesscinema.net uh, is our new home online now, so the podcast will be posted there. Um we're going to be playing around with some ideas for it, but we thought it was about time rather than just having uh sort of podcast landing pages as home pages we've now got a centralized website strangerinacinema.net so um please check that out let us know what you think it links through to the uh podcast on spotify but the podcast is still available everywhere else you can get podcasts so we're not exclusive to spotify so please don't panic there um in the meantime also find us at the usual places at strangers cinema strangers in a cinema on facebook and instagram uh it'd be great to hear from you but we will be back next week yeah and you there you listening to this if you've made it this far do us a favour, do us a solid and just write a review if you would. Um, obviously, you're under no obligation, but those reviews really help to get the show to more people. And the reviews that we've had so far have been really humbling and really, really positive. But the more that we get, the more that we can spread the, the show around. So we'd massively appreciate that. And other than that, yeah, we'll be back next week with uh, all the usual sections. See you then. Bye. Bye.